Our scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Amen. Well, if you're following in uh, the study guide for Colossians, we are changing it up a little bit. I went through um, the study this week and just basically found that there was too much uh, in this text. It was supposed to go basically 5 through 17, and it was just too full. And uh, it would have been a really hour and a half, two hour sermon, which I'm sure you all would have thoroughly enjoyed. It would have been awesome. But. I thought that instead we'd go part one and part two on it. And so really, this, um, today's sermon uh, kind of goes with next week's sermon. And what we're talking about is a full picture, a true picture, a clear picture of repentance. We hear that word a lot, um, but I don't know if we fully understand what it means. I think sometimes we understand only half of it. So this is one half, and you'll need to come back. It's like a little teaser of coming attractions. So you understand a fuller picture Uh, And today we're going to talk about fighting sin. Um, Last week uh, I spoke about or or shared that the purpose of creation, the purpose of our creation is to bring glory to God and to do that through enjoying Him uh, forever. And enjoying Him is made difficult because of sin, but ultimately that is what our purpose is in this life. And so to that end, that is to bring glory to God, to God, um, we are to, um, it's necessary to stop being tantalized by uh, the squirrels, if you will, of creation and to start beholding the pure awesomeness that is our Creator. And with intention and with consistency and with enthusiasm, we are called to seek and to set our minds on God's full revelation of Himself. And that full revelation is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is what changes us, beholding Him and looking at Him and setting our minds on Him. And Scripture teaches us that the more that we feast, and I like the word feast, uh, it's not you know, sniff or, or nibble or politely taste. It's just this, you know, king's buffet, feasting, who cares how much chunks in your mouth, messy, awesome, wiping your face with your shirt. Feast on Jesus Christ. And the more that we feast on Him, on the knowledge and the riches of Jesus, verse 10 that we will hit today reminds us that the more we feast, the more that the image of our Creator is being restored and revealed for everyone to see, but even for ourselves 
to see. Now, through faith then, in Christ and what He has done, we begin to look like Jesus. And we begin to love like Jesus. And we begin to hope for Jesus' return in a way that maybe we had not hoped for before. Looking forward to it. So up to this point though, that being Colossians 1 and 2 and then uh, barely into 3, he has, Paul has largely used indicative statements. This is the English teacher coming out in me. Now, indicative statements are just that, statements that, that indicate something, that, that proclaim something. And he, Paul, has proclaimed the truth of the identity of Christ, who he is, and what he's done, and the statement of truth about our transformed identity that comes through believing in that, what we, Scripture calls the gospel. And it's been very positive, it's been very uplifting, very clear of this is who Jesus is. This is who uh, He is the head of all things. He's the creator of all things. He is the recreator of all things, the sustainer of all things. And He has reconciled us with all these things. It's like, yes, Jesus, go, Jesus, yes. And then He shifts. And He does this in most of His letters. And He begins to see, or we see the shift today, and understand what He meant when He said in verse 28 of the first chapter that proclaiming the gospel includes both teaching and warning. And all of that is for the purpose of maturing. It's not one or the other, it's a both and. And so beginning with chapter 3, he shifts from indicative statements to what would be called imperative commands. And ultimately what he's doing is he's beginning to command us based off of what we know, off of what the indicative statements that he has said up to this point, off the truth. So in verse 5, he says, put sin to death. To fight sin, to slay sin, to kill sin, to mortify sin. Scholars will call this this idea mortification. Really uplifting word, right? Mortification. Now, Paul, we should kind of pause for a second because Paul has already said something about sin and about, and about death. and He's already said that through faith, God has crucified us, buried us, risen us to new life with Christ. This is what God has done. And in doing that, in crucifying us with Christ, he has said that the world is dead to us and sin is is dead to us, and we are dead to sin. And so we go, what exactly are we killing? The horse is dead, right? Are we just beating this this dead horse that's already dead? Now, the truth is that for those who put their faith in Christ, we, I, am dead to sin, and its power over me is gone. But sin is not dead. Okay. Now, it is defeated, it is disarmed, but it is still very dangerous. In my experience, and this might be different than yours, I'll just, I have my experience of my faith in Christ. When Jesus saved me, when Jesus opened my eyes, when Jesus grabbed me by the back of the collar and ripped me into His new kingdom kicking and screaming, but then going, oh yeah, 
For me, temptation didn't go away. In fact, it got a little worse, I think. Maybe that's different from you, but I didn't stop sinning. I didn't stop sinning since I, um, or sin didn't stop tempting me, if you will, since I first became a Christian. It didn't stop tempting me this week, many times. But the moment God granted me repentance, and that's what I believe it is, it is God's gift. The moment He granted me repentance, the moment God opened my eyes, He turned me toward the truth and revealed to me the sinfulness and ugliness of my sin. I saw it for the first time for what it was. I saw that I was in the midst of a war I didn't even know was going on, and I was on the wrong team. He showed me that. And the truth is, in my experience, the more I behold Jesus, the more I seek Jesus, the more I set my mind on Jesus, doggone it, the more sin I find in myself. Maybe that's different from you. Maybe you discovered how pure you are. That's not what happens to me. In fact, I find more each week, even this week, the more sin that needs to be killed in me. And it's interesting, in preparing a sermon to talk about fighting sin, I had the cruddiest week I think I've had in a long time. I would say ask my bride, but, you know, well, go ahead. She'll, she'll just go, mm-hmm. That's all she'll say. It's hard. It's a fight. It was difficult. Now, there's a lot of confusion, I think, about sin. And it's become, I think, because it's very unpopular to talk about sin. In church, let's not talk about sin that's offensive, that might turn people away, Whatever. The truth is, it's really easy for us to talk about sin out there, over there. The sin that, you know, is away and distant from us. Yeah, those sinners over there. Man, that sin that's plaguing this world. The sin that's coming into our schools. The sin that's coming into our government. The sin, I mean, it's easy to talk about that stuff, and I think that's true statements to make, but let's be very clear. The sin is not coming from without people. It's not external. The the problem is something that's coming within us. That's the sin that's hard for us to talk about. The sin in us. James, whom I love because he's so straightforward and people therefore avoid his book because it's too convicting. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is within us. And it can make very good things very bad. And we need to understand, and my hope is for us to understand in this kind of part one picture of repentance, is how deeply Sin has affected us. How totally sin has affected us. 
But also, yes, what Jesus has done to crush the power of sin, but what, as Paul is going to say, we need to do to kill the sin that tempts us. The sin he's going to describe in us. So what, what's sin? Well, sin is not temptation. Temptation's not sin. Sin is the heart-rooted rejection of God's light, of God's beauty, and God's rule. It is an issue of the heart. And apart from salvation, men's sinful hearts are described this way by the Bible. So unredeemed hearts. Dead, full of wickedness, a fountain of evil. Broken, blind, deceitful, hard, foolish, proud, hostile toward God. That is the description of a man's heart. And because of the sinful hearts of men, they refuse to follow God's commands, they refuse to heed His warnings, and they refuse to believe in His promises. And biblically, the heart would be understood, especially in in, in Jewish terms, as as the center of man. Everything that that makes up that man. Everything that that is really the, the, the control center, if you will, of the mind and the body and all those things. It is the inner essence of the inner man. It is his very nature. So we talk about the heart. It is everything that represents that individual. And though... Men knew God. God, in His very passive wrath, gave them over to their sinful hearts. Which is a very wrathful thing to do. To let your child, if you will, indulge. Let them have as much as they want. That's not a loving thing to do. It is a wrathful thing to do. It's a judging thing to do. They denied God. They pursued everything that they're evil hearts desired, and as a result, their thinking was perverted, their perspectives, their emotions, their, their words, their hopes, their very definitions, their actions, everything about the person was perverted by sin. And in their sin, men began to devote themselves to worshiping all kinds in every aspect of creation. Everything but the one true God who had given them everything, even life. That's the description of what sin has done to us. Totally depraved in every way. Not absolutely. Not the worst we could ever be. We could always be more sinful. But Paul reminds us in verse 6 that because of sin of the simple hearts he describes, that is why God's active wrath is coming one day to destroy everything. Those who are, quote, not on his team. But then verse 7, he says something very interesting, which is where we're going today. He reminds the Colossians that you too once lived under this wrath. You too once walked with all joy in your sin. Something 
changed with these Colossians at a heart level. Something changed to take what was evil and hostile and broken and blind and turn them towards God. And that something, he already said in chapter 1, was the power of the gospel, the news of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did. And it turned them from enjoying and pursuing and walking, which is a description of living in their sin, to desiring to walk and live in Christ. Now you think about that. Blindness, hostility, brokenness, being a fountain of evil, that's a lot to overcome. And so, the way that's overcome is that God did only what the Creator can do to change that person. He gave them a new heart. He didn't just bandage up the old heart. He didn't just inject it with some steroids to get it going again. He gave them a new heart with new desires and a new place to walk. One of my favorite passages in Ezekiel chapter 36 says it this way in the Old Testament, verse 25. God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the moment we confess that He is Lord and Savior and believe in our heart in His death and resurrection for me, everything changes Forever. Our hearts that were rocks with God's truth bouncing off of it, wanting nothing to do with God, are ripped out by God. And a soft, receptive heart of flesh is put into us and we have new life. By the blood of Jesus Christ, As mysterious as that is, once and for all, Jesus reconciled me to my Father, adopted me into the Father's family forever, never to change, never to go, oh, I'd like my heart back. Never. We are saved, redeemed, reconciled forever. See, before I had a new heart, I loved my sin. May have loved different sin than you, but I loved my sin. And now, I hate sin. I hate sin. Not because it hurts others primarily, not because it, it hurts me primarily, primarily because it grieves my father, which is a change. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians, me, never sins. Exhibit A this week, right? It doesn't mean that 
Christians won't commit just the big sin. Well, you know, Christians don't commit the big sins. Whatever your big sin list is. Not sure what the verse for that one is, but that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that Christians sin when they sin that's different than non-Christian sin. Like, it doesn't stink as bad. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that Christians only sin by accident. No, I'm very deliberate when I sin. What it means is that Christians from the heart no longer desire to sin. That they, a Christian, cannot walk, cannot live, cannot practice sin without complete misery. That's the change. But let's be really raw, okay? Wanting and desiring to walk in Christ is really easy. And actually walking in Christ is really hard. Maybe I'm just speaking for me. Purity, Polly. I mean, come on, right? It's hard. The desire's there. You go, okay, why? Why if the desire's there is it so stinking hard? I've got a new heart, right? With new desires. I should be like going crazy in Jesus. I have the desire. And that's because it's hard because our new heart still lives within a sinful flesh that will not be removed until we are with Jesus. And this sinful flesh that your new heart resides in wants to kill you. Every aspect of your life wants to dominate and destroy. Puritan John Owen, who wrote many things, a lot about mortification as well, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See, because of Christ, because of what he, we learned this at the end of Colossians chapter 2, sin is disarmed and its power can no longer have dominion over me, but that doesn't mean that its influence is completely eradicated. It's, it's like a, a caged animal. Like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't rain, but it's still incredibly deadly and brutally attacking me. And because my flesh has been so saturated in sin in every aspect, the flesh attacks me through so many different things, through my thoughts, through my emotions, through my experiences, through our hopes, through my words, through the, through the smallest details of my life. It never stops fighting to try and take dominion back, to try and enslave me again and try to reign again. Now, it will never remove my position in Christ, but it is always trying to enslave me. And I've seen people who are Christians enslaved to their sin still. And the reason that happens, because I believe it, it cannot rain unless you allow it to rain. 
unless you open the door to allow it to have dominion again. Because it is powerless. Here's how Paul says in Romans 6. Very emphatically, very clearly an imperative command, something that we can't accomplish, is let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, for since you are not under law but under grace. We allow, here, we allow sin dominion a couple ways. One, when you first underestimate its power. If you feel yourself saying, I can handle it, it's not that bad. Dangerous. But the other, I think, more common way where we begin to allow sin to have dominion is when we actually begin to wrongly believe that it's limited, its influence is limited to only a few parts of our lives. Like, well, sin doesn't affect my thoughts, doesn't affect my words, doesn't affect my work ethic, doesn't affect my parenting, doesn't affect my husbandry, my wifery, doesn't affect these things, doesn't affect how I eat, how I drink, doesn't affect how we relate to people. It affects everything. Our sinful flesh has sat, every part of us was saturated in sin and still is attacked in sin. That's why Paul is so adamant about saying you have to be vigilant because sin never stops. You can't cease to fight against your sinful flesh. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body to keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. But, here's the good news. Praise God that I don't have to fight my sinful flesh alone. Praise God, because it is powerful, it is evil, it is subtle, it is clever, See, God gave me more than a new heart to fight with. Did you catch that in Ezekiel? He gave me more than just a new heart with new desires. He gave me something else to help me fulfill those desires, to walk that way. Through faith in Christ, He gave me a new heart and He filled me with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God whom Francis Chan describes as the forgotten God. God Himself dwells in me to, as Ezekiel said, cause me to walk a certain way. This is the qualitative difference between a believer and a non-believer. The Holy Spirit in our hearts the non-believer, though who has not put their faith in Christ, if you're here, you are incapable of fighting. In fact, you don't even believe there's a fight to be had. That was me before I was a credit. No, there was a battle. What am I fighting again? I love this. 
But Galatians chapter 6 says it this way. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 16. Paul writing, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a war. There's a battle. Prior to faith in Christ, there was no battle. Right now, there's a conflict, and it's a conflict that is daily. And the Spirit is what I lean on, what I depend upon to win. And I'm guaranteed to win. Through faith in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, I have the ability to kill the sin in me. That's what Paul says, right? Put to death what is in you, the earthly things in you. It's not out there. That's where the legalist goes. That's where the ascetic goes. That's where the mystic goes. Oh, it must be a problem. No, the problem is in here still, this sinful flesh, and I have the power to battle. See, without the Holy Spirit, you can be a really good shadow boxer. Good legalistic shadow boxer, a good ascetic shadow boxer, a good mystic. And, and what that looks like, like, man, that guy can fight. And you have the appearance of health, but Paul's already said, you're a shadow boxer. You're not fighting anybody. You have the appearance of being a fighter and the appearance of godliness, but it's all for naught. It does nothing to the flesh. The Spirit is the difference. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit. Now, killing sin is not separate from beholding Christ. It is part of of beholding Christ that I talked about last week. It is, it is one half of repentance. See, that the word decide, right? The, the side part of that, homicide, suicide, the killing part. When you decide to seek and set your mind on Christ, you kill, you decide to kill everything else that is earthly that you're not looking at, that you could look at. See, and this is in every area of your life. Every area that decision happens. You cannot behold sin and Christ at the same time. Now, mind you, when we sin, anytime you sin, anytime you you do as you ought not, and you don't do as you ought, that's the moment you stop looking at Christ. It's the moment you're no longer beholding Christ as the center of all things. And it happens. Anytime you sin, happened to me this week many times. It happens. It's a fight. And you're not fighting for moral perfection in your flesh. Newsflash, that's not going to happen in this life. You will never, ever achieve that. 
That will not happen until you are fully revealed in the presence of Christ. But fighting here, repenting here, turning from sin and putting to death here as a way of life, as a lifestyle, we are doing that to become in practice what we already are in position. That's what's happening. You already, indicative statement, you already are saved in Christ. You are a new person in Christ. You have newness of life in Christ. And this is a lifestyle, life of becoming that in practice. Becoming who you are. That's the fight. It's not to obtain something you don't already have. It's to become what you already are. So through faith in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, Paul says, kill sin. Kill it in you. Not excuse it. Not ignore it. Not try to manage it. Not try to wish it away. Kill it. And when it comes again, you kill it again. It's like the Black Knight. Keeps coming, right? Kill it again. You know, Black Knight, what are you talking about? Come on, Monty Python, where are you at? Jeez. That's what sin's like. It's like, you know, gets legs cut off. It's like, still coming at you. Kill it again. (laughs) And the truth is, in order for us to battle sin, you have to know how it's attacking you. Because the way sin attacks you is not the same way it attacks me necessarily. Everyone has their own stories. The own way sin has come into your life that destroys you or tempts you or breaks you. I I often ask that when we're assessing church planners, how is Satan going to get you? What is it? Because it's not the same for everybody. We have certain predispositions. We have, we have certain experience we have that, that allure us more than others. Some people, money and greed and power, I mean, that just drives them. For others, it's lust and, and addictions of, of sexual nature. What is it? Do you know your enemy so that you know what you have to kill? But in this passage, I think it's interesting to say, because Paul gets very specific about some sins And the the crazy thing is, these are the sins that were pervasive 2,000 years ago. And what does he say? Well, to summarize them, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Wow. Those sound really familiar. I mean, we're, for 2,000 years, we, we really haven't gone on to new battles? Nope. Because the things that you pursue to reject God are still the same. And they'll always be the same, because God hasn't really changed. And unfortunately, neither have men. We've gotten a little more colorful in some of our sin. But it's ultimately at the heart the exact same things. And it's a pretty good list that is summarized by John in his first epistle, and he talks about everything that's in the world. He proves there's a sin, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Well, that pretty much wraps it up. It's also a very good summary of uh, part of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments speak about our relationship with God. And the last six commandments speak about our relationship with others, really based off of those first four. Pretty good summary in the last six of everything there is 
that God says, I hate. See, with our relationship with God, this is how you know what to fight. When our relationship with God is set, our position in Christ is known, and we are thinking about it and dwelling, the manifestation of that is our relationship with other people. That's where you begin to see it played out. And there's nothing more important that the sinful flesh wants to destroy but our relationships with others. And he does that through sexual sin, through material sin, and really through verbal sin. Pretty much all fits in that category. And in your mind and in my mind, we can put it in priority order. What hits me? Where's Satan? Where's sin? Where's my flesh going to attack me? For some of us, it's sexual sin. Now, it's very broad. He includes some other things in there, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting that Paul, if he ever gives a list in Scripture, nine times out of ten on that list, the first thing he identifies is sexual sin. And it doesn't take much of a Google search to find how much sexual sin has destroyed people and how it is the number one thing destroying people in our lives. Ultimately, what we're talking about relationally is when, when a person looks at another person and begins to see them as a tool to be used for their own sinful pleasure. And possibly even leading them into sin if it's actually a person and not an object. Or a picture, I should say. But this kind of sin can, can be physical. It can also be very mental. It can also be very emotional. And he includes all kinds of things where you have the physical sin of, uh, of sexual immorality, which is honestly having sex with someone you're not married to. Whether that's, whether that's before marriage, whether that's adultery, whether that's homosexuality, it's all in the same drawer. But then there's also lust and pornography. And he even includes evil desires and passions, talking about indulgence and appetites of all kinds. All kinds of evil, unrestrained desires. And in 1 Thessalonians, we have a, a group of men called Battalion 435. It's men that are honest about their fight. And men who have decided to battle. And it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.3.5. It says, For this is the will of God. Fantastic. I've always wanted to know. Your sanctification, colon. Now, sanctification is a really big term for looking more like Jesus. Loving Jesus more, loving sin less. Becoming in practice what you are in position. A lifelong process, very progressive, very slow sometimes, where you are walking and you are becoming and revealing the image of God that's restored more in you. That's sanctification. Never completed, but always progressing. And this verse says, What's his will? Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First thing he says. That each, of, each one of you know how to control his old body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know God, Christian! You know God! You can control your lusts. By the Spirit, you can 
fight. Some of us, though, it hits materially. That's the other category he has. What's that in relationship to others? How you view their stuff. The material world. Coveting. Coveting is looking at what your neighbor has, implied what you don't have, and desiring to have it. Desiring more than really you ought to have, or more than God has given you. This is greed. This is making an idol out of creation. Maybe this is your greatest struggle, and it doesn't have to be something tangible. It can be something invisible. Regard. Power. Approval. That thing where you say, man, if I just have this, I'll be happy, satisfied, content. That is material sin. And this is, maybe right now, one of the leading causes of conflict in our world. This whole Occupy movement, caused by greed, which is coveting stuff, and perpetuated by people who are coveting the greedy. That's what it's about. It's rooted in coveting. All kinds. Created by and perpetuated by. Coveting. I want that. I deserve that. That's what coveting leads to. Feelings of entitlement. It leads to people taking and not giving. It leads to people consuming and not serving. It leads to me, not us, not you. It leads to fighting. It leads to quarreling. Coveting. And the funny thing is, we don't use biblical language to talk about those kind of things. Like when your kid is looking through the new Christmas catalog from Target. And it's kind of cute the first time, oh, I'd like that, Dad. And then it's like, and that, and that, and that, and that. Son, that's called coveting. What? Do you use that language at all, ever? Because my guess is if you don't, I'm not saying like, you know, you need to use everything biblical term you possibly can and make your home just stoic and sterile and cold and weird. But if you never use that language, my guess is you're never thinking about that yourself at all and how you're coveting and what you're looking at materially. At its heart is fear of not having or losing, a lack of gratitude, and an overwhelming sense of discontent. James says it, again, the book we like to avoid. James 4, verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Seems pretty clear what the problem is. And finally, maybe more pervasively, I know for some of us, is verbal sin. Sin in how we communicate with others. Sin in what we speak. Christ was, he spoke about it all the time. He said, you know what comes out of the mouth? That's like perfect little TV screen into the heart. Words can reveal hatred. They can reveal pride. 
They can reveal preoccupation with stuff and things. And it extends to even lying, where you're more concerned about the approval of man, because that's why we lie. We don't want them to think poorly of us or differently of us or truthfully of us, so we lie so that we can get their approval. James says, the tongue, in chapter 3, I love James, he says that it is a fire lit up by hell itself. And he says in verse 9, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. With the same tongue. So these are the sins, obviously, categorically, that we are to fight against. And we each get attacked differently, but there's a fight going on, and you can allow dominion again. You can allow it to reign if you do not fight. It will never fully conquer you, but it certainly can dominate you, and you can live a life of misery and discontent because of sin. So we are to put to death, and we are to begin believing that there's a fight to be had. There's actually a fight that has to occur. And sin is so evil, it will tempt you not to fight, or it will tempt you to fight the wrong things or in the wrong way. And I've said it before, practice doesn't make perfect. That's a lie. Practice makes permanent. You can get very good at fighting the wrong things in the wrong way. You can get excellent at it. And so we must fight the right way. So, to close it out, I'll tell you how we are to fight. What it really practically looks like. First and foremost, we fight honorably. Well, what does that mean? It means that the motivation for your fight is for the glory of God. Not to make your wife happy or your husband not mad. It's not to make your kids happy or to give them the greatest thing in the world. It's not to not lose your job or to get a promotion. You fight For the glory of God. If that is not the motivation for your fight, you will fail. You will fail. So you fight honorably. You also fight intentionally. You don't just let go and let God. Stupid. You fight strategically. You write a battle plan and you commit to it. Because sin doesn't attack people the same way. You have to be in... Nothing happens without intention. People wait like, I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to do something. Well, he's waiting for you. Joshua had to step onto the battlefield, put his foot in the river, and then moved. Guaranteed victory if he moved his stinking foot. There was a strategy, though, an intention. You also fight ruthlessly. What's that mean? It means you make a radical, radical fight there's going to be some sacrifices that you have to make. You do not let sin have a doorway. That's why Jesus talks about it, and I think Matthew 4 talks about cutting off hands that's causing you to sin. You cut them off. Now, don't literally cut them off, okay? But the idea is there's things that are going to be radical you're going to have to do. You're going to have to make some sacrifices in order to fight well and fight successfully. Man, I go to my job, and it's just, it's just pouring on me. I'm always fighting to get... Then quit! Get a new job! 
Man, I lust, and really, how do you lust? Well, I, I stay up late at night, and I look at the computer, go to bed early! Well, that doesn't help. I look at my computer on my phone, then get rid of your phone, and get rid of your computer. But I really need it. Really? You really need it. So much so you're willing to live in sin to have it. There are going to be some things that are painful, but if you're motivated by glorifying God, who cares about anything else? You cut it off. You cut it off. You fight relentlessly. What does that mean? Well, it means fight's never done. When is it done? When you're dead and buried. You can stop fighting then. Until then, you fight, you fight, you fight, and you never give up. Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh, and he also talked about his fight against it. Man, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and it never went away. Our guys go through a purity study. They go through 60 days, and when they were done with it, we went through the first time with them. I wrote a blog that said, day 61. There's nothing magic about 60 days. Day 61 is when it gets tested. Are you going to keep fighting? Okay, my 60 days, I can rest now. No, you can never rest. You fight, you fight, you fight because your sinful flesh is fighting and fighting and fighting you. You don't give in. You never give up. You don't stop. I've asked guys about the thorn in the flesh. I said, so what if God doesn't take it away? Well, he wouldn't do that. What do you mean he wouldn't do that? He did it to Paul. What if you have whatever that thorn is, forever. You have two choices. You can give up and go, okay, I'm just going to be in pain and suffer, or you can fight. What if it never goes away? What if that's exactly where God wants you to be, which is exactly where he wanted Paul? Why? Because he forced him to be dependent upon the grace of God. We fight relentlessly. We fight skillfully. Last couple, what's that mean? It means... You fight like Jesus fought. How did Jesus fight when he was, fight when he was tempted? Scripture. This guy memorized the book of Deuteronomy, a good little Jewish kid, and he threw it down when he needed. You fight skillfully. doesn't matter how good your battle plan is. doesn't matter how many uh, you know, latte stands with girls dressed up that you avoid. doesn't matter how many things you put on your computer to prevent you from looking at stuff. If you're not fighting with Scripture, all that's for naught. The pervasiveness of sin is that they can put me, you, whatever, in a room with no windows and nothing, and we will still lust. That's how evil it is. So we fill our minds with Scripture, as Christ did, the sword of the Spirit. Last two, and two of the most difficult. And the ones you're going to go, oh, veil over the heart, not listening to this one. Bounce off me. Must be about someone else. You fight communally. There are no Rambos. Okay? Although we all want to be one. There are no Rambos. There are no one-man armies. God has put us together because that is the way we are to fight together. What's that mean? It means I'm transparent with my sin with someone else. That begins in a marriage, it extends to a family, and then it goes to community. Are you transparent with your wife, your husband? Are you transparent with your children? Do you talk about your need for a Savior with them? Or just theirs? You're transparent about your sin. 
I remember speaking at the men's breakfast, and I said, what do you think? I get up every Sunday and tell you about my sin. I'm screwed up. I'm broken. I confess. I remember telling them, like, hey, look, what do you think people think about me? That's all, I don't want people to think that. What do you think people think about me? When I stand and say, oh, by the way, I went through the 60-day purity study with our church. Do they think I'm a sinner? Because I think they should think that. I want them to know I'm a sinner. I want them to know I, I am depending upon God for His grace. I'm not going to fake it. But it's, I know it's uncomfortable. But we've got, group, it's, we've got small groups for men who are, man, these guys have come and they've exposed their hearts and said, look, I, I, I need help. And that fight sometimes is just, it's just an, you know, someone to be there and listen. Sometimes it's to be encouraged. Sometimes it's to be kicked in the butt. And women need it too. We have a women's group as well. We've got small. That's the, the beauty of community. It's sanctifying. James actually meant confess your sins. He really meant that. Confess your sins one to another. But it's hard to do. I understand that. But living in darkness is the alternative. And John says in his epistle, there is no fellowship if you're not walking in the light. Got to fight together. And lastly, and most importantly, we fight faithfully. What's that mean? It means you fight holding desperately on to the cross. You don't fight in your own power. You fight with humility. The gospel, a mindset in the gospel protects us from despair when we're getting the crap kicked out of us in our fight. But it also protects you from pride when your fight's going pretty darn well. We never want to despair so much that we rob the gospel and the cross of its power. But we never want to like, man, I am such an awesome fighter that we begin to boast in our own skill and not our dependence upon the Spirit and the cleansing through the cross of Christ. So you've got to fight faithfully. You've got to have people around you that lead you to the cross. You lead your own children to the cross, both its power and its forgiveness and its hope. So our fight, though, is not just one of defense. So looking forward to next week, know this. It is also an offense. Repentance is both walking away from my sin and walking to something. And if you only get half of it, you will fail. And so I'll close with a verse which is out of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, which says it this way, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So one half of living in Christ, of repenting, of that life of contentment and joy and glorifying Him, is looking at the broken cisterns that hold no water and going, ah! And turning away from them. But the other half next week is drinking deeply from the fountain. You can't stand still. You've got to pursue. You've got to fight to know your sin less. And you've got to fight to know the riches and beauty and living water that is Jesus Christ more. And we'll talk about that next week.